Oh, sorry, I'm not a real ghost. But you are listening to episode 15 of the Secret Origins podcast, which features some ghosts. Namely, Deadman and the Spectre. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly. A little bit later, I'll be joined by first-time guest Gene Hendricks to talk about the origin of the Spectre. But before that, Doug Zavisha returns to the show to talk about Dead Man. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for coming back again. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, folks, the last time Doug was on the show talking about the Challengers, that was the second segment of the episode, so he didn't have to listen to my scripted explanation of Secret Origins. For Doug and any new listeners who haven't heard it before, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Both stories in issue 15 happened to feature ghosts. This is like our early Halloween episode. And the first character we're talking about, as I said before, is Dead Man. Are you a fan of Dead Man, Doug? Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dead Man's a character that uh, I tripped across in those Baxter reprints. Mm-hmm. And, gosh, those came out uh, roughly the same time that I discovered the joy of a local comic shop. Were those the reprints of the Strange Adventures with the Neil Adams art? Yes. Yes. And, and Neil Adams had uh, reimagined several scenes for those covers. Mm-hmm. And the covers were wraparounds. And the price point was painful. <laughs> but the art itself, I mean, just buying it for the art was more than worth the money. Yeah. I've never seen those in like back issue bins that weren't overpriced. So luckily I was able to get one of the, the dead man collections not too long ago. Okay. Um, and going back and, and it had a lot of his early stories, which were recolored kind of retouched up that he had done not too long ago. And, but still just trying to imagine it just as like the, the old coloring or just black and white, his art on that series, which was, earlier in his career, but it just, it popped so much. It was so good looking. So the collection you mentioned, is that the, uh, the proto, uh, what are they calling them? Absolute edition. It was, they, they have like a series of five dead man trade paperbacks okay. now, which covers pretty much, I think it's all of his appearances up until crisis. Maybe, maybe up through his, his mini series. Uh, it does include the, the mini series written by Helfer. Okay. Yeah. And like you said, there's five volumes there. Yeah. Yeah, and I got the first one of those. Um, okay. Not a bad place to start. Yeah. 
Well, let's actually uh, let's tell our listeners a little bit about who this character is and where he came from. Deadman first appeared in Strange Adventures issue 205, cover dated October 1967. The character, who was a circus aerialist named Boston Brand before fate and supernatural circumstance turned him into Deadman, was the brainchild of writer Arnold Drake. According to Drake, DC editor Jack Miller asked him to create a feature that would save the struggling Strange Adventures book, just like he had saved My Greatest Adventure by creating the Doom Patrol four years earlier. Arnold Drake pitched the character and concept of Dead Man to Miller, while legendary artist Carmine Infantino, who shared office space with Miller, eavesdropped on the conversation and began sketching the character. After a protracted argument about the name Dead Man, Miller finally agreed to champion the character, with Drake scripting and Infantino drawing the first story. Neil Adams took over art duties with Jack Miller scripting and Carmine Infantino plotting Dead Man's adventures, starting with issue 206. Adams wrote and drew the Dead Man stories in Strange Adventures from issue 212 to 216, and for a couple years, Adams was the signature Dead Man artist when the character appeared in The Brave and the Bold and in backup strips in Aquaman. For the next 15 years or so, Deadman made guest appearances in books like Justice League of America, Swamp Thing, Challengers of the Unknown, Phantom Stranger, and World's Finest. He also had a regular strip in Adventure Comics issues 459 to 466. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Deadman received his first self-titled limited series written by Andrew Helfer and drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praised be his name. Praised be his name. He also had two recurring stories in Action Comics Weekly. More recently, Deadman was brought back to life at the end of Blackest Night and starred in the Brightest Day maxi-series. In the New 52, he served as part of Justice League Dark. And that's what I've got for notes on the character's publication history. Did I miss anything important, Doug? Um, Post-Crisis and way pre... Well, not way, but pre-Blackest Night and all that, there was a Dead Again five-issue limited series that went back and looked at... Uh, five points within the history of the DC universe and put Dead Man in the context. <laughs> One being the death of the Flash. Uh, then there was the death of Jason Todd, Hell Jordan, and I forget the other two. Maybe the death of Superman. It was a five-issue series, and I want to say it was written by Steve Vance and then drawn by, first issue had Garcia Lopez art, I believe. Leonard Kirk added a few, and then that led to a roughly nine-issue series that didn't really receive any accolades or noteworthiness uh again written by steve vance and there was some art in there from garcia lopez towards the end and also sean mcmanus showed up to do some drawing prior to that kelly jones had done two two part issues uh prestige format in 90 and 92 or 89 and 92 and really changed the look of dead man as kelly jones's want to do you know reimagine dead man as an emaciated corpse with a aerialist costume on it and that's what you got pretty much he's the only one that ever depicted boston that way as um when boston came around for brightest day he was returned to you know looking fairly normal again and you know just in a costume of sorts so but yeah for the most part i, I you pretty well nailed it i, I know there was a I vertical forgot. series i haven't gotten into that at all uh, as far as i know that wasn't even boston brand though i think they changed the character's name for that and that was written by Bruce Jones, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I forgot he actually he when the New Fifty Two launched, there was a DC Universe Presents yes uh, series, yes. and Dead Man had I think the first five issues. Right. Who wrote that? Was that Paul Cornell, or am I thinking of somebody else? 
Paul Jenkins. Paul Jenkins. So you're right in the Paul. <laughs> there was some Paul there. So. Paul Jenkins and Bernard Chang. And then uh, there was a eight-page story in the Zero issue of DCU Presents. Any other notes on the character's history before we move on? I, I find it interesting that Drake just basically dropped him, you know, wrote the first appearance and, and moved on. Jack Miller came in and did some scripting. You had Kaniger do some scripting. And Neil Adams actually wound up doing the, the bulk of it towards the end right. when things got really trippy. Yeah, especially because in the collection that I had mentioned previously, Arnold Drake wrote the introduction to it, or one of them. There was also a, a blurb by Infantino. Um, but he makes such a big deal about his push for this character and like how he, he sort of pitched it to them. And you, you'd think he would have a little bit more invested in the character, but he still he only wrote that first trip and then the editor took over. But... It was enough. I mean, he made that comparison. He came in a few years earlier with the Doom Patrol that saved that book. And he kind of struck gold again. And it sounds like their their major bone of contention that they were fighting over was Jack Miller didn't think they could put the name Dead Man on the cover of one of their comics. Yeah, I don't see why, why not. But, you know, different times and all. Sure, yeah. Folks, we are going to take a quick promotional break. But when we return, the origin of Dead Man. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanhole soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. Secret Origins, issue 15, was cover dated June 1987, but would have hit shelves and newsstands on March 12th of that year. The cover is penciled by Ed Hannigan with inks by Dick Giordano. What do you think of this cover? This cover is exactly what I wouldn't expect from Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. (laughs) Initially, I mean, it looks like something Sinkovich would do. Mm -hmm. 
And the fact that it is Ed Hannigan, you start to study it a little bit more and you can really see it in Dead Man's face as he's peeling off from Spectre. And, and to a degree, you can see it in Spectre, too. So it, it's a nice cover. I mean, it sells the book. It definitely gives you an idea of the fact that you're dealing with two ghosts here. But the combination of Dead Man's Red, Spectre's Green, uh, takes you right to Christmas. <laughs> it does. We have orange here and a little more black, I think. Yeah, there's... I want to love this cover so badly because I love the idea of this cover. And you, I think you said it right. If, if like Bill Sienkiewicz had done this, whoa. But I don't know if it's the coloring, if the way the red bleeds, it actually looks like it's bleeding kind of off of Dead Man. And the way the body is coming out, like the, the D shape on Dead Man's chest, is it's kind of overlapping but with the eye of the specter. It's just right. there's something where it feels like it's not finished like it's a rough draft or something yeah, I don't yeah it does it definitely does towards the edge of specter's hood too cross mm-hmm. action kind of scatters out that's what i keep coming back to i love the idea of this cover i wish they had taken another pass or they'd taken a little bit longer or if it just had a different coloring scheme yeah maybe if you didn't have the green of the specter at all maybe if it was like a black and white except for the red of dead man um, well, maybe if it was just black and white to begin with. Maybe. And the logos were the color. Yeah, something like that might have helped it out. So all your uh, listeners out there who are hobbyist colorists <laughs> can maybe give this one a, a go and post them up, see what we get. Yeah, somebody wants a special homework assignment, extra credit. Go. I will send them a signed copy of this comic. It won't be signed by anybody who worked on this comic. It'll be signed by <laughs> me. Or... <laughs> awesome. It'll say, good on you, insert your name, artist. (laughs) Leave a nice blank line right there for them to write their own name in. Yeah. All right. Well, Doug, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Dead Man? Let's do this. This is written by Andrew Helfer. Sorry, I'm accustomed to calling him Andy Helfer from, uh, I believe that's how he signed all the letter columns for Justice League, or at least some of them. And it's drawn by Kevin McGuire who at the time was drawing Justice League. I haven't done the cross-reference on the timing, but I want to believe it's somewhere between like issues two and three as far as when it came out. I I'm pretty sure that he drew it before then, though. Probably, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this was the third credit he got. Like It says that Justice League was the first thing that he did. Which, okay. If that's true, wow. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, this could have been done before that in terms of like scheduling. And if Andy Helfer is involved with both of them, that's maybe how he got the gig. Yeah. And it certainly seems like this book would be excellent as a tryout book or as a, mm-hmm. a test case for new artists. Right. Anyway, uh, McGuire's drawing it. He's inked by Giordano. D- <laughs> Dick Giordano. Letters are by Bob Lappin. Colors are by Adrian Roy. Edits are by Greenberger, as has been the case to this point. This story opens up with 16 panels that juxtapose two scenes. The two scenes are divided into columns, and the coloring kind of helps tie the scenes together. Uh, There's a flashback to you that is simply labeled then, and it's showing a sniper on the top of a building. And as he's targeting his prey, the other columns are showing an eye, or a very close-up of an eye, snapping awake, and trying to focus. When we learn that the eye belongs to the sniper, and on the turn of the page, we realize that the, or we are given that the sniper's name is Matson, and he's paying for his failure, that failure being 
that at the bottom of page one, his target, who is in the crosshairs of his sights, gets a lucky save in that somebody just happens to walk in front of him. Now, as the story goes on, we learn who the target is, and that'll come back by the end of this recap. So what we see here opening up the origin of Dead Man is the origin of the Hook, who is a figure that's integral to Dead Man's origin and someone we will see again in this comic. The setting on pages two and three is the den of the League of Assassins, and the enigmatic Sensei is commanding his underlings when he gets this disturbance in the force or uh, gets uh, his panties in a bunch or one of those two. And he's not very clear on what happens. He just orders everybody out of the room. And it's the, the panels are real tight, so McGuire's storytelling is condensed into each panel, and he does a very good job of packing it in there. Uh, but anyway, Sensi is alarmed by something off-panel and orders everybody out. His body is abandoned, and we see that someone named Jonah, not Jonah Hex, there's no whale, and there's also no comic book resources, so all we know is this is a Jonah, uh, leaves the Sensi, and the Sensi crumples to the ground to confront the disembodied visage of Ramakrishna. And here I'm just going to put a quick aside. The image that Kevin McGuire gives us at the bottom of page three is a very, very obviously a female. But later on in the story, Rama is referred to as a he. So, you know, godly beings, what being who they are, genders swat back and forth, who knows. But at any rate, it could be a, a typo, could be otherwise. We're looking at Rama here, our first introduction to Rama. Again, very much a part of Dead Man's origin and Dead Man's mission. Mm-hmm. Rama, who is rebuked by Jonah, then turns to Taj Z, the guardian of her temple. Now, nowhere in here when she's talking to Taj Z, which is on the next page, Taj Z is this big, huge hulk of a man um, who's very, we're just going to say what it is. It's stereotypical Asian guardian is, is what he looks like. He's got the big, well, he doesn't wield it here, but he's been presented with a big scimitar later on or in other parts of Dead Man's story. And if I recall correctly, in their history of the DC Universe, Shag was bagging on this guy pretty fierce. <laughs> but Tajji is uh, Rama's guardian, guarding her temple, telling the children around the temple a story. When Rama appears to him to summon Vashnu, who is, here we go again, stereotypical Indian mystic, who calls upon his friend Maxwell Loomis. So Loomis and Vashnu are now given a mission by Rama. Loomis, we learn, has history as both an acrobat and a private detective. And we'll find out a little bit later on what exactly their mission is. But Secret Origins at this point cuts to the Hills Brothers Circus, where Boston Brand, clad in his red and white aerialist uniform, is performing a page-filling acrobatics for Lorna Hill. And those acrobatics are this new bit that he's trying to incorporate into his performance to try and draw in a bigger crowd. You know, through their conversation in The Secret Origins, we learn that the circus is struggling a bit, and Dead Man has this, or Boston Brand, has this great idea for Dead Man's performance that'll hopefully uh, get folks on their feet and get more folks coming in. Page facing that is filled with Loomis and Vashnu's travels, as they are, and here's the mission, seeking the man who wears a hook and the other who wears death like a crown. And as, uh, as mentioned earlier on this page, this is where Vashnu says, Rama says nothing, yet he points the way and points out a poster of Dead Man for the Hills Brothers Circus. Loomis and Vashnu uh, interrupt Lorna and Boston's almost makeout session as Loomis then presents a spin for a promotion that Boston simply cannot resist. 
Why doesn't Boston perform his death-defying feats to personally hand an invitation to popular presidential candidate and former astronaut Kane? We don't have a first name on this Kane. I'm just going to pretend it's Gil. <laughs> the next day, Boston and Loomis go out and they're scoping where Kane's going to be making his appearance or his, his speech. And as can only happen in fiction, they rush by Hook, who's also scoping out the place to try and perform the assassination that he was originally assigned. Presentation sets up. Kane is on stage. Boston comes swinging in just as he did previously and swinging in on a, a zip line. He winds up again spoiling Kane's sh- or Hook's shot on Kane. So the assassination attempt once again foiled. Hook now has to alter his plans to kill Kane and decides that as he listens in to Brand personally inviting Kane to view the circus, that's going to be the perfect time and place. We cut back to the circus as they're preparing for the performance. Packed house. Kane's in the house, and because, you know, of the celebrity appearance, that's why the Big Ten is packed as well. Here is where Kevin Maguire shows up as Kevin Maguire. In the fourth and fifth panel, Dead Man's, or Boston Brand's got his mask off, and he's just talking to Lorna about how great this is going to be, and he just snaps, rigid, wide-eyed, furrowed brow, almost a sneer, not quite, bitten lip, where it's not described as such, but he feels something brushing across his essence his body his not his body his uh his destiny although it's not labeled as such here lorna prize to what it is he's like oh nothing babe don't worry about it moves on with the rest of the show we cut to vashnu who is appealing to rama hoping that the divine being will change course or at least make it clear what's supposed to happen and she does make it clear boston brand must die hook must kill him vashnu was hoping that somehow just hook would be wiped out But that's not the case. That's not what's meant to be. So with a little stage hocus-pocus, Vashnu, disguised as Sensi, delivers the change of plans for the hook and changes the hook's target from Kane to Deadman. So then we get the next page, and it's all told through the sights of Hook's scope as we witness Boston ascending to the trapeze, grasping the trapeze, and taking a bullet. On that page, the lower half of the page as the simple image of Boston's chest being pierced, and the text, and so it ends, and so it begins. Final page of the issue buttons things up, including a metaphysical moment where Boston looks down on his own body and then receives his charge from Rama. It's not really given any farther than that, just that Rama knows what's going to happen, She's going to, or what has happened. She'll let Boston in on a secret, but he's really going to have to listen to what she has to say. And really, that's a great encapsulation of the origin as it appeared in Strange Adventures. But in Strange Adventures, it was spread out a little bit, and we never really got to Hook's identity until farther into the, that storyline. Mm-hmm. I was trying to approach the story from the perspective of somebody who knew nothing about Dead Man. Like, if this okay. was your first exposure to the character. And to one extent, I think it might be frustrating because... The story doesn't feel like it's about Dead Man or Boston Brand, really, at all. From the start of it, it seems like it's the story about the assassin Hook. And then it switches, and maybe it's about Vashnu and Loomis. Then it kind of switches, but we don't really get too deeply into Boston's head. So I can, I can see it being frustrated if somebody feels like they don't know enough about Dead Man to really get into it. But if you do know the story, this is like a perfect zero issue, like a great prequel 
to lead into that strange adventure story where he, where he first appeared. Uh, I mean, that story basically gives you Boston's version of the story, what he thinks, because he's oblivious to a lot of these goings-on. He doesn't know about the assassin. He doesn't know who Vashnu is working for. So, yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds about this story. Part of me really, really likes it for that reason. It's a great prelude or prequel or zero chapter to Dead Man's Adventures. Well, the timing on this, this issue came out almost a year after Helford wrapped up that miniseries, mm-hmm. the four-inch miniseries with the art by uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. So maybe maybe it was presented or maybe Helford conceived it, and this is pure speculation, as kind of a, a, an end cap or a recap mm-hmm. in case people had come through that miniseries. But in the first issue of that miniseries, the origin is presented amazingly in like a page and a half. What's what's done there is Boston handwrites a letter to his brother Cleve in Cleveland's own handwriting as he's possessed his brother. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that this origin doesn't get into at all is Dead Man's powers. Yeah, that's and true. really what that mission is. So as you say, this is a perfect zero, but it needs just a little bit more. I think it did a good job of encapsulating the the origin point of how Dead Man got to be dead, but it didn't give us much to look for beyond that. Yeah, actually, you, you mentioned that it does, we don't we don't see Cleveland in this story, which is fine. We didn't we didn't need De- Boston's brother because he wasn't central for a long time. We do get a lot of characters, and it's we, we, we get a lot of incomplete characters too. Right, like, right, and we we get a lot of characters who are working for Ramakrishna, but again, we don't really know what Rama's plan for Dead Man is by the end of this story. If they could have given us ten more pages or even four more pages, mm-hmm. it probably would have been a completely different tale. And, and quite honestly, I'd like to see ten more pages drawn by McGuire for this story. You've kind of pointed it out in your synopsis. I can't think of another artist who does facial expressions better than Kevin McGuire. Maybe Brian Bolland because of his more photorealistic style. But in terms of just giving you a face with character and emotion and feeling and curiosity, Kevin McGuire nailed it. Yes. Um, now, for that same reason, I was never in love with his Justice League. Now, uh, maybe I should rephrase that. I think he, he's great on a book like that, Justice League. That's just not the kind of Justice League that I want. I want big adventure A-list heroes in my Justice League. And I always I, felt I like I always felt like the tone of the Giffen Dematis Maguire Justice League. That book I, I think should have been retitled Batman and the Outsiders. Because it was, <laughs> it was Batman playing with a bunch of misfit toys that, did, that okay. really didn't work in that context. I like everything about that book except for the idea that it was positioning itself as the premier superhero book, superhero team book of the DC universe. I can see that. That felt a little bit like false advertising or like fool's gold to me. But beyond that, yeah, his art was perfect for that style, and he really he does some amazing things with the faces and the art in this story. Like you pointed out, that first image of Ramakrishna, male, female, it, God, whatever it is, it's a pretty face to look at when we see her. Yes, indeed. On page four, when we have that first panel with Jonah, like, shouting at her like everything about that look like just the the number of wrinkles and the contortion of that face but you get this oh like if he could like spit poison at her right or or the the pensive face that taji has there at the bottom of the page mm-hmm. 
or the hay stuck in Loomis's hair on the next page. Okay, so the Loomis character I wasn't that familiar with. Was he in the other series? Because I recognize some of these others. I'm trying to remember if he was in Strange Adventures, and and that's failing me right now, but I know for a fact he was in the Helfer series, the okay. limited series drawn by uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. name. I think he might have been around in the Strange Adventures tales, but I'm not betting any money on that one. I want to know more about this guy. I mean, he's set up in, in this story as what Boston would have been if he didn't die, or what he could have been if he didn't die. He's got the, the circus background, and he's sort of a private investigator. It's sort of you know, there, but for the grace of God go I. Like, what would his story be? Like, what would they be like together? So I'm, I'm just curious about him. Yeah, the miniseries is definitely worth seeking out. And I, I want to say that's in the fifth volume of the Dead Man collections that you had mentioned earlier. Yeah. I've got it in floppies, so I haven't really dug too deeply into what's in each of those issues, but uh, or each of those collections. Other arts? I, I, or- yeah, I do actually have one. Um, I'm not going to call it a failing because I, I can't see Kevin McGuire as failing, mm-hmm. but he put the hook on the wrong hand. And if, if you go back to the Strange Adventures, Hook's hand is the left one. Yeah. The, or Hook, is rather, is the left one. But in 215, so the second to last issue of Strange Adventures, there is one scene where Hook is pulling himself out of water. And I don't know if it was flipped for publishing purposes or if Neil Adams had just gotten himself confused or turned around at that point. But the Hook is depicted as being the right hand. That's Mm -hmm. the only point where it shows up right. But the rest of the time, it is his left hand. Yeah, throughout the story, that's, I mean, even from the beginning, that's the hand that's being chopped off in the opening scene. Yeah. It's the yep. right hand. It, at least it's consistent throughout this tale. You know, and, and for what goes on there, that's all that matters. Okay. Well, let's talk about that character because I have some all concerns right. about the hook. All right. His uh, first assignment when he's sent out by the League of Assassins is to kill somebody. And as you said, he fires, but fluke chance somebody walks in front of the bullet and gets taken down. It, looks like, it actually looks like a, a Secret Service or a bodyguard just shifts position. Okay. And that's where he loses his hand. That's where he loses his hand. So he's sent out a second time, and he's going to kill this candidate, Kane. You think it's Gil Kane? I think it's Bob Kane. We'll just, you know, okay. split the difference. He's about to do that when all of a sudden he sees Dead Man's ass, like through his crosshairs, <laughs> right, as, right. The, as the aerialist swings into view. So he doesn't get that shot off. And the third and final time he goes to kill this guy, Vashnu puts the whammy on him and has him change his target. Right. This isn't a good representation for the League of Assassins. No, it's not. (laughs) And I also, I also, I have to question the logic of Sensei. If your guy fails you, you're going to give him a second chance, but you're going to cut off his hand and make his job harder for him. Sensei was. Not quite himself, we'll say. Yeah, yeah, we we can say that he wasn't quite himself. I, I'm thinking, you know, Rachel Ghoul had to go and slap a few people around and say, "This is how we run a League of Assassins." Definitely. <laughs> and Sensei, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> One thing along those lines is in, in the Strange Adventures tales. So not here in Secret Origins. This is an adjustment made for Secret Origins. Mm-hmm. Boston Brand was the original target in Strange Adventures. Yep. And what had happened there is eventually Cleveland comes to the circus, Boston's twin brother, comes to the circus and starts performing as Dead Man, sometimes with Boston possessing him, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, finishing off as Boston departs. But Sensei gives Hook another 
corrective lesson based on the fact that he failed to kill Boston Brand. Right, right, because he thinks Sensei thinks that Cleveland Brand is Boston Brand. Exactly, even though Boston's wearing a mask and a costume as Dead Man, so it could literally be anybody. Right. But Sensei doesn't seem to be doing all of his homework on that one. Uh, I do like the adjustment here in Secret Origins by making Hooks target somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does speak pretty strongly to Rama's influence through Vashnu in order to have Vashnu change the target for Hook. But it comes back to your point of we've got a whole lot of characters here and we don't have a really deep story on any of them. No, and I mean, in fact... On the last page, we have this moment with Loomis and, and Vashnu, and Loomis is saying, we could have stopped him. We had the chance. And Vashnu yes. says, but it was not for us to decide. This is but a step in Boston Brand's evolution. Rama has assured me so. Like, just, I would follow a book with these two characters, with Loomis and, and Vashnu, and maybe it is more in that Andrew Helfer series that you were talking about. But right. they, they do have a strong presence there. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to see this... The, the guilt that, that is eating away these guys in very different ways by the fact that they, they had to let this innocent guy die to fulfill a greater destiny for their master. And that's, you can tell how it's eating away at Loomis. Like, he is not happy about this. And Vashnu just has right. – he, he seems to be a man of more faith. But, yeah, just that little character moment, I was like – Ah, I was like, you could have skipped the three pages with the hook at the beginning. I don't care. I want more pages with these guys. Yeah, we or, or condense the hook story. Right. Yeah, you don't need a splash page dedicated to hook losing his hand when you're not truly showing it. Yeah, yeah. That could have been a couple panels. Mm-hmm. You talked about the that first story in uh, in Strange Adventures two hundred five. It's a really fun, really great first issue because it sets up Boston as kind of an asshole. I mean, he, yes. he's not—he's not totally unlikable, but he's not charming, lovable playboy guy. He's working in this, you know, struggling business. He's pretty selfish about it—that he's just doing this in for himself. And they make a point that he pretty much alienates himself from everybody else in the circus, so that when he is killed, pretty much everybody is a suspect. Like it takes right. it takes like about ten issues to realize that no the killer was some hired assassin and what where did that come from everybody this guy knew had a motive to kill him why why it, is it coming from this league of assassins that's part of what makes that series so great it, it, is it, that it could be anybody yeah and uh, we we talked about this when we were doing challenges of the unknown and it's going to come up again when we do Doom Patrol next but the story of Dead Man would be freaking awesome as a TV show. Yes. It, and I think, I think it's better yes. suited as TV than a movie. I think this could be it's, – it's a supernatural quantum leap. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a supernatural horror-tinged quantum leap. And you, you built in the, the pilot episode is him trying to figure out who killed him when everybody else – when everybody he knows is a suspect. And right. he's going around. And he, he ends up like taking the, the body of – the sort of circus strongman who's this dumb brute, but when, when Boston takes him over, suddenly he's very articulate and he can speak. Yes. And he catches yep. this – he catches one of the circus guys dealing with the local police in this drug deal and everything. It's, there's so much great material in those first Strange Adventure issues. I was like, that should be a TV series. It wouldn't even require a huge budget like they have on shows like The Flash or Supergirl. It could and, be and- a pretty low-rent show. And those 11 issues could be two seasons easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it's and it, it, it works because of the nature of his powers. It works in that serial storytelling. You yep. have a long sort of meta plot of him investigating this mystery, but along the way, every episode, he's jumping into a new body or two, solving a different crime, helping yep. somebody else, you know, through their life or getting over their death. Yes. Um, this is prime creative real estate for a TV show. I don't know why it's never been before. And, and, and like you said, it's the same with Challengers, and it's definitely the same with Doom Patrol. Yes. It, it's just waiting to transform into other media. Yeah. And I would agree wholeheartedly this is more TV show than anything else. Yeah. And it could even follow the CW prescription of must have attractive young stars, you know, must have pseudo action, must have overreacting actors. You know, it, it fits right there. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's because he's a ghost, you can have him have this unrele- unrequited love with Lorna Hill. Oh, oh, you can do so many parodies of the movie Ghost. <laughs> You can, yes. you can have him possessing people's bodies and doing the clay thing at the wheel. Yep, yep. You can have all sorts of fun with this. It could be fun. It can be scary. It could be exciting. It could be adventure. I mean, it, there, there's no path that Dead Man's character hasn't gone down or couldn't go down. Right. Either in the comics or, as we're talking about right now, on a TV show. There's nothing that can't be done with this character. And he doesn't have great superpowers, and I'm pretty sure that interns nowadays know how to blend somebody in or out to make them appear as though they're a ghost fading off of a frame. Right, right. You know, I'm pretty sure that's taught in film school 101 at this point. Yeah. It could also be such an actor's showcase and a fun thing because oh, yeah. you've got to figure every time he possesses somebody, the actor basically has to perform as two different characters. That would be a challenge and a fun thing to see. And it could have a revolving guest mm-hmm. appearance lineup, you know, I mean... Just think, anybody could show up for an episode, and as you say, have that opportunity to act two different ways, or maybe act something that they've always wanted to do, but they've been typecast in this other direction, or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, and 43 minutes later, they're back to being whoever they were, they made an appearance on a show, all's better for it. I'm going to tweet to Greg Berlanti and uh, Andrew Kreisberg <laughs> about this. Say, Hello, why aren't you doing this? Do this our way. Well, and, and then millions of dollars will roll our way. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering if maybe it's in their plans. Um, I'm not watching Arrow, but I've seen mention of Nanda Parbat showing up there. It has. It has, yeah. It was actually it was a pretty significant part of their third season. Um, and how do you do that without... That's the other thing. I've heard that the fourth season of Arrow will do more with, uh, with magic in the supernatural realm. Uh, they canceled Constantine, but there was some speculation that the character could pop over an arrow. I'm not holding my breath for that, but this would be an interesting way to sort I mean, they used Arrow as a backdoor pilot for The Flash. I think they could easily do the same thing with Dead Man. I, I think the big sticky point, and it's not really even that big, is offering up a circus performer as your lead. Well, I think that is different than... I think it's different for Dead Man than it would be for Robin because the nature of Robin was that they were – it was part of a traveling circus that they were going from town to town and everything like that. And, and that it was you, – you think of bringing that circus to Gotham that feels very quaint. That doesn't seem like something that they would normally see like that would be stationed there. With Dead Man, I think you could make the adjustment that, that he, you could set it in Las Vegas at first. You could you oh, could, say, you you could say he's part of Cirque du Soleil or something like that. 
you could modernize it a little bit that way, where it, the the Hills Brothers Circus it's not a traveling you know carnival type of circus. It could be a, a Las Vegas or an Atlantic City style like show that's that's based there, um, because really. He doesn't need to be at the circus the entire time. I mean, that could be part of the pilot episode, and after that, he could just be sort of wandering the world, getting into different adventures, looking for his killer. Um, I mean, the nature of the League of Assassins, if that was the villain, would take him across the world. So I think think having him be an aerialist or a performer like that would be an easier sell for this character than it would be for Robin, for a modern audience. I like that. Anyway... We're thinking too much about Dead Man and other media. Let's get back to thinking about him in the comics. Um, We've actually uh, done a pretty good job of pitching both Challengers and Dead Man at this point, so I can't wait to talk about Doom Patrol. That's going to be our hat trick. <laughs> Maybe we can even cast that one for him. Oh, I've got my fan cast for Doom Patrol, so I'll, I'll break All that right. up next time. Any other big thoughts on this story, uh, this particular Secret Origins issue? I would... Love to see more Kevin McGuire and Andy Helfer on this, but I'm not sure what Helfer's up to nowadays. I'm not sure where DC is exactly taking Dead Man. But as far as this issue as an encapsulation goes, I think it's a great, as you put it, zero issue. Mm-hmm. Almost a zero hour. Oh. <laughs> um, I knew Helfer more from like in the late 80s, early 90s with his work on like Judge Dredd. He actually he did the Shadow book in the late 80s, I think, when DC had it. Yes. Um, and that was great. I remember like, finding back issues of those and just like devouring those art. Don't really remember the stories that much, but I remember the art, particularly the covers. I think those had Sienkiewicz covers. And... I think you're right. So yeah, the story itself, it's a good story that is well-drawn. It's less a dead man story than it is a world of dead man Sort of like yes. all of the ideas, the 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 villains and the side heroes that sort of support Boston Brand on his afterlife adventures. It's kind of a teaser for Dead Man. It is. It is. And it's, it's a fairly good one. It falls short a few places, but it, it's pretty good. What are some other Dead Man stories that people should be reading? Like, I can, I can certainly speak to those early Strange Adventures issues. That's a great serial story with him possessing different bodies, solving different crimes, all in this sort of long-form st- saga of trying to identify his killer. And along the way, he, we, we meet more of the world of the, the people in the circus and their backstories and brothers and sisters with delicious art by Neil Adams. Probably the best way to get those is that uh, trade paperback that you... Mm-hmm. It is a trade, right? It's not a hardcover? Yeah, no, so yeah it's collected in five trades, yeah. You can also find those stories in Baxter reprints, but they're not as um, as collector-friendly. It was a seven-issue reprint, and they would reprint pieces from Strange Adventures and then other Dead Man appearances in the same issue. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't read linearly in a single issue or across seven issues. You've got lead stories that take the Strange Adventures story, and then you've also got other pieces in the back. So if you're just looking for a nice sampling of Dead Man with some great art, and you happen across those Dead Man Baxter issues, snatch them up. You yeah. won't be disappointed there. Again, I'm going to point back to the Andrew Helfer, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, limited series, four issues. Uh, you can probably find those floating around. And if I'm not mistaken, they are in one of the trades as well. It's volume five. And volume five also actually has this story from Secret Origins. And Challengers of the Unknown, 85 to 87, where Dead Man appeared, and I believe Swamp Thing also appeared in those issues. Mm -hmm. That's probably a good one to track down. 
Um, Brightest Day, Dead Man was very central to that story. And honestly, I really enjoyed Brightest Day. It gave, it, it had a whole lot of hope packed into it that I don't think DC ever really capitalized on. I have not read the DCU Presents from the New 52 with Dead Man. I've got them. I just haven't gotten around to reading them. I think I read the first two issues of that series, and it was decent. I mean, there was a reason I didn't finish it up, and I knew that it was just a five-part miniseries, so it's... I don't I don't remember why. I, I think I remember it being overly complicated for some reason, but I could be wrong. It could just be my memory. Um, as for New 52 stuff... One of the books that I really was enjoying for a while was Justice League Dark after Jeff Lemire took over writing duties. And the art on that was, I'm probably going to butcher the guy's name, but it was like Mikael Jenin? Jenin? Yeah, the, something guy, like that. the guy who's doing Grayson now. Yeah. Um, his yeah. work on Justice League Dark for about two years, maybe less than that, but it was gorgeous. Yes, there were there were some really good stories there, like with the the books of magic, right? Like basically leading up to the Trinity War stuff and the Forever Evil. I but, will co-sign that. Yeah, his, his take on Dead Man in those stories was really really good. Yep. Um, and something another one that I just kind of remembered because somebody told me about it today was the Wednesday's comics. Yes, that that collection, which honestly I think like the probably the worst stories in that were the headlining acts, but like with Batman and Superman. But almost all of the smaller stuff was really, really good. There's a Dead Man story by, I think it's by Dave Bullock, and has a very, a very DC animated universe type of art style. Really gorgeous to look at. And of course, if you pick that up, you'll also get great Supergirl story by Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, uh, a gorgeous Hawkman story by Kyle Baker that we were talking about earlier. And the Commandy story by um, Ryan Sook. Ryan Sook, Dave Gibbons, yeah, yeah. There's a great Adam Strange story in there by, oh shoot, who is it? Uh, Is that the Paul Pope one? It is Paul Pope, yes, thank you. I do have one standalone, must read, for your listeners that can't be passed up. And it's from the Batman Gotham Adventures series. Okay. The one that was written by Ty Templeton, drawn yeah. by Rich Burchett. Issue number six. I checked it out earlier on Comixology. It's 99 cents. 99 cents, people. You've got that. Go get it. Comixology, I think, has all of the, the Dead Man trades to all five volumes. They've got those digitally, too. So there's no shortage of Dead Man stuff out there, people. No. no. Good stuff. It's... Fun character, as we've said, it's built for leaping off the comics and into other media. All right, well, any final thoughts on Dead Man? No, I wish I had some sort of snappy catch line like, uh, you know, get dead and stay there or something, but I I really don't. (laughs) And anything that I could come up with just wouldn't be any good. But he's definitely a character that's got uh, some great stories associated with him. And there's no shortage of great talent associated with those stories. You know, everybody from Kelly Jones to Neil Adams, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise, praise be his name. You know, I mean, they're, they're great stories out there with great art. And even if you just get it for the pretty pictures, enjoy it that way. It's worth it. Okay, well, Doug, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast again. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more about your thoughts on comics? Well, first off, thank you, Ryan. Um, I am still doing reviews for Comic Book Resources. uh, And then I've also started up a new blog. I'll get to that one in just a second. But I do occasionally still have things showing up on uh, MyGreatestAventureAD.blogspot.com. And the new blog is TalesOfMyGreatestStrangeAdventures.blogspot.com. What? 
that's giving me a chance to expand beyond the Doom Patrol. Okay. Not a whole lot as we're recording this, but hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have a little bit more up there. Can you give us a, a little taste of what might be involved in that? Well, let's just say that because it's got tails in it, it's not going to restrict me to DC. I can maybe go investigate some Marvel stuff. And we've got the My Greatest Adventures playing in there, so we'll still be doing Doom Patrol stuff. Okay. And by going Strange Adventures, I'll be able to talk about Dead Man and some other folks that may have appeared in Strange Adventures. Um, it's not going to stay limited to those three avenues, however. It's just a place for me to celebrate as this wonderful podcasting community, listeners, um, and folks that chime in on it, refer to it, the joy of comics. The joy of comics. Find you know, the, your joy the, and blog about it. Exactly. The reviews I'm having to be critical about, this blog will give me a chance to be a little more celebratory. Awesome. Everybody go check that out when you get the chance. So, All right, well, Doug, thank you very much one more time for being on the show. Definitely look forward to having you back when we talk Doom Patrol. I will be here. Trekker Talk, a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. We're back to talk about another ghostly character. This time, it's the Spectre. And joining me on this segment is Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes blog and the Hammer Podcast. Welcome to the show, Gene. Hello, Ryan, and hello to all you secret admirers out there. Ah, oh, thank you. See, you've done your homework. You know how to name check <laughs> the audience. That's classy. Oh, I try. You know, I'm trying to be an, a good guest and make sure everyone is is comfortable with my being here. You know, un, unlike some other people who will not be named. Shag. <laughs> well, that is the best way to ensure that you get invited back again. <laughs> Gene, back in June, you appeared on the Fire and Water podcast with Rob Kelly and <clears throat> Shag two of the most reviled guests on this show. <laughs> and I remember on that episode, you talked about getting copies of the old Creepy magazine. Yes. Um, were you a fan of the horror genre or horror comics in particular? Uh, I'm what you would call a jack-of-all-trades fan. Okay. Uh, if it's a good story with decent art, I will more than likely enjoy it. Um, the reason that I got into Creepy and Tales from the Crypt and things like that was that's what my dad used to read. He didn't really read superhero stuff when he was growing up. He read more of the horror comics. So that's where I got into it, and the twist ending and everything – I got my appreciation of that from him. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when Tales from the Crypt came on HBO, that's one of those things where much like with the creepy magazine or with the Leonard Skinner CD, he bought me, it's a sit down, you'll enjoy this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just, you know, it went from there. So I enjoy horror. I do not necessarily go out of my way to find it, 
but if I happen across it, then yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna enjoy it. I didn't see the Tales from the Crypt show when it was on HBO, but it was slightly censored and modified, and then rebroadcast on some cable network that I was able to watch when I was growing up. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I always really dug the stories. Uh, not too many years ago, I got. I don't remember who published it. Um, somebody published a big hardcover bound like Tales from the Crypt archives. I remember seeing those. I don't. I don't remember who put it out either. I can't remember anymore. Um, I had that. It had like the first six issues. I loved it. And no kidding. I'm sorry for the cliche, but my dog ate it. <laughs> we, we got we got a new puppy who liked to chew everything. Usually the more expensive, the more she liked it. Mm -hmm. Um, She chewed up that. She chewed up my uh, hardcover deluxe edition of one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles books. Uh, Crazy stuff. But I I hadn't been very familiar with Creepy or Eerie or any of those things. And I actually never read that much DC horror. Um, I recently purchased the the Showcase Presents House of Mystery, but I haven't gotten into it yet. Most of my familiarity with horror comics came in the 90s because a friend of a friend, when I was like a kid just getting into comics, a friend brought over a shoebox of his dad's old, it was like 20 copies of Tomb of Dracula and a half a dozen Werewolf by Night and some Ooh. like Marvel premiere with Son of Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like I just started devouring the Marvel horror stuff. So that was really one of my first loves was that Marvel horror realm. Yeah, it seemed like to me anyway that the Marvel horror was more straightforward storytelling. Like mm-hmm. Tomb of Dracula was a story, whereas House of Mystery and House of Secrets, it was the framing sequence like with the old creepies and right. eeries and everything where you had a narrator telling you the story yeah. and then they came back at the end with, hey, do you believe this twist that happened? Right. There was the twist ending or it was some kind of parable where there was, it was a cautionary tale of some kind. There was right. Yeah. Some some sort of lesson to be learned, whereas the Marvel horror, they were melodrama. They the characters were as tortured and haunted as some of the superhero characters they had. So, yes. Yeah, and that that was Marvel putting their stamp on the genre more than anything else. Mm. All right, well, that's a a good segue into anything, into Hmm. our character for this segment, who is one of DC's original horror characters, if perhaps not their oldest, but certainly one of their largest, and that's not a, uh, that's not trying to be clever. We'll see. (laughs) The Spectre was created by writer Jerry Siegel and artist Bernard Bailey for More Fun Comics issue 52. Prior to the Ghostly Avengers creation, Bailey had drawn the Buccaneer strip for More Fun and the Tex Thompson of stories in Action Comics. Jerry Siegel, on the other hand, has no previous writing credits that I could find. I don't, I don't know if he ever wrote on anything noteworthy. Could, do you know, am I missing something? <laughs> nah, not, nothing I can think of. Yeah, he's just flash in the pan, had this one, one good character, and that was it. <laughs> Anyway, Michael Bailey is screaming at his iPod right now. He's bleeding. He's bleeding out of every orifice right now. All right. After the Spectre's debut, the character continued to appear in the next 50 issues of More Fun Comics and graced the cover about 14 times. After just five months, the Spectre began a second recurring feature in the first issue of All-Star Comics and became one of the founding members of the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics number three. The early Spectre stories saw the hero fighting gangsters, swamis, mystics, and sorcerers. 
Unfortunately, after less than two years, the dark menace of the stories was subverted by the introduction of a dopey co-star, Percival Pop, the super cop. Before long, as the superhero fad died down, the Spectre was relegated to sidekick status in his own series. The Spectre's last Golden Age appearance was in More Fun issue 101, which came out late in 1944, only five years after his creation. He wouldn't appear again for more than two decades. During the Silver Age of comics, the Spectre returned in a handful of issues of Showcase, The Brave and the Bold, and in the occasional JSA crossover in Justice League of America. In 1967, the Spectre got his first solo series, which lasted ten issues. Creators involved with the Spectre series included Gardner Fox, Neil Adams, Steve Skeets, and Murphy Anderson, to name a few. For the next 20 years, the Spectre made numerous guest appearances and starred in several anthology books. Arguably, his most acclaimed series was a ten-issue run in Adventure Comics, written by Michael Fleischer and drawn by none other than Jim Aparo. These stories were reprinted in the Wrath of the Spectre four-issue series, as well as the trade paperback of the same name. And they are awesome. The Spectre continued to make guest appearances throughout the 70s and 80s. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Spectre got another ongoing series in 1987, this one written by Doug Munch with art by Gene Colan. That series came out right around the same time as this issue of Secret Origins retold his classic origin. Then, during most of the 90s, another Spectre series was published, written by John Ostrander and drawn by Tom Mandrake. And after that, well, the character's history gets a little crazy in the 2000s. The spirit of the Spectre takes other hosts, including former Green Lantern Hal Jordan and former Gotham detective Crispus Allen. And he goes crazy and tries to destroy the universe several times. Uh, And it's all more complicated than we need to talk about for now. Gene, do you have anything to add to that history? Not really, no. The Spectre is one of these guys like the Phantom Stranger that kind of comes in and out of different comics. Uh, So he's been all over the place. Whatever character you can name has probably had a run-in with the Spectre at some point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's kind of ubiquitous. That was the exact word that I was going to (laughs) use. There are certainly a lot of similarities between he and the Phantom Stranger. I guess if there was one major difference I see is... I see the Phantom Stranger being more of a he is more of a a protector and he he does show up as a harbinger to give warning to for people to correct their behaviors and to prevent disasters whereas the specter is more reactive and he shows up after something bad has already happened yeah being the spirit of vengeance mm-hmm. he's much like Marvel's Ghost Rider although much much more powerful. Yes. And he doesn't do anything proactive. It's always, I can't do anything until he kills the woman. Then I can shatter him into a million pieces. <laughs> but he can't prevent the murder itself. But we'll get more into that when we talk about this story in particular. Well, you set it up. Are you ready to talk about this origin story? Why, why yes, I am, as a matter of fact. <laughs> All right, take it away. All right, we have The Secret Origin of the Spectre. The writer and co-adapter is Roy Thomas. Artist and co-adapter is Michael T. Gilbert. Letterer, Augustin Moss. Colorist, Carl Gafford. Creative editor, Roy Thomas. Coordinating editor, also known as creative editor's whipping boy, Robert Greenberger. (laughs) The Spectre created by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey. 
Our story opens in February 1940 at the boarding house of one Mrs. Lonigan, where we find police detective Jim Corrigan getting ready for the party where he will announce his engagement to socialite Clarice Winston. His conversation with Mrs. Lonigan is interrupted by Louis Snipe, one of Corrigan's informants, who tells the detective about a robbery that will occur at the Westmore Warehouse. As Corrigan is a driven cop, he puts off the party in order to take down the robbers, who he finds out are part of Gat Benson's gang. Springing into action, Corrigan takes down all three robbers single-handedly, just in time for his backup to arrive and kid him about not leaving them anything to do. We switch scenes to a stately manner, where Clarice is chiding her mother both about putting down Jim, as well as her reliance on a swami, who Clarice considers to be a fraud. The phone rings, and Jim tells Clarice that he had to take down some mobsters, and all it cost him was a tuxedo jacket. Worried, Clarice leaves her mother and speeds to the police station to be with her man. As they leave the station, they are observed by Gat Benson and his boys, who follow the happy couple away from the rest of the police. Getting the drop on Corrigan, Benson abducts him and Clarice. Not going without a fight, Corrigan punches out two of the gang before Benson shoots him in the shoulder, knocking Corrigan out. When he comes to, Corrigan is handcuffed in a barrel with Clarice tied up in the same room. Her pleas to pay a ransom fall on deaf ears as the mobsters fill the barrel with cement, drowning Corrigan. After the cement hardens, they throw the barrel off the end of a pier. Suddenly, Corrigan's spirit is transported to the pearly gates, where he hears a voice telling him that he isn't dreaming, but he can't go to his eternal rest yet. The voice tells him that his mission on Earth isn't yet finished, and, despite Jim's protests, he is sent back. Seeing his dead body under the water finally gets Corrigan to admit to himself that he is dead, but he worries about Clarice. Using his sight beyond sight, Corrigan sees Clarice being abused by the mobsters. He flies out of the water and teleports to the warehouse, where he comes through the wall, scaring the mobster Ratso. This doesn't stop Benson from shooting Clarice, however. Taking his revenge, Corrigan transforms Ratso into a rat and pulls a Last Crusade on Benson. He then motorboats the dead body of Clarice, which somehow returns her to life. Corrigan takes the now-revived Clarice home, where he breaks off his engagement, telling her that he no longer cares about her. Devastated by what he had to do, Corrigan begs for release but the voice tells him that he has been chosen for a sacred mission. Corrigan rejects this, again asking for eternal rest. The voice says that the request will be considered, but warns him that Clarice is again in danger. Transformed into the Spectre, Corrigan goes to his ex-fiancé's home, where he exposes the Swami as a fraud, who used a movie projector inside his crystal ball. The Swami, who was the one that hired Gat Benson to get rid of Corrigan, decides to take revenge by shooting Clarice. While the bullet speeds its way to her, time is stopped and the voice reappears. It tells Corrigan that he can have his eternal rest, but in accepting, he will doom Clarice to death. Willing to endure an eternity wandering the earth rather than see his beloved Clarice be killed, Corrigan accepts his fate catching the bullet. 
The specter now turns his attentions to the Swami, torturing him with visions of all his fears. Finally, the Swami's body is incinerated, while his spirit is trapped in a mirror, which the specter shatters with the bullet that was going to kill Clarice. The specter disappears, saying a final farewell to Clarice, and begins his wandering of the earth as a man both more and less than mortal. Very nice. Your description on page 16 that he brought Clarice back to life by motorboating her is perfect because well, that's the, what the art on that looks page. like. <laughs> I was like if, if you take away every other panel on that page, it doesn't really look like he's cradling a dead body. You certainly get another implication. <laughs> I just call him as I see him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Thoughts about this story? Well, there were only two problems I had with this story. The art and the writing. <laughs> I did not enjoy this at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was expecting a lot more out of this, but wow. <laughs> you don't normally see the guy doomed to walk the earth being a good cop, great at his job, and he only chooses this to save the life of the woman he loves. Are we sure this was God involved here? <laughs> What did you think? <laughs> well, this is another instance where I think subsequent retellings and reimaginings of the Spectre's origin have made it better. And yet again, Roy Thomas chooses to not quite plagiarize, but copy the exact same story that was published 45 years earlier. And... There are times when he probably should have deviated and streamlined certain elements or tweaked certain elements, and he chooses to stay truthful to the source material even when it damages the quality of the story. Yeah, I... It annoys the hell out of me, but that's... (laughs) I understand his style. I don't understand his reasoning. Because you look at this, it's an obvious Golden Age story, Mm -hmm. which means it's fairly simple, straightforward but doesn't necessarily make the most sense. You can take all of these events Mm -hmm. that are in this story, and you can tweak them, you can make things a little more streamlined, like you said, or give you a little more depth to it. Well, especially because this story is adapted from three Spectre stories, the Spectre's first three appearances. Now, Spectre's origin in More Fun was a two-parter, which I have to imagine was extremely rare for the Golden Age. But the first story ends with basically Jim Corrigan dying and his spirit floating up. And then the second story picks up with him going to the pearly gates and then getting revenge on the gangsters. That whole thing with the Swami and going back, that was all in the third story. And it feels... Like, it did not need to be in this story at all. Right. You could excise that completely. You could have, well, Benson wanted to kill Corrigan because Corrigan's been after him for so long. Mm -hmm. You don't need the Swami to hire the mobster to kill the detective who is the fiancé of your Mark's daughter so you don't get found out. (laughs) Wow, is that complex. (laughs) And it's making it overly complex just to force it in to fit the story when it didn't need to be in the story. No, he, he could have ignored that last issue and just told the Spectre's origin. But mm-hmm. but like I said, I still don't understand why 
Because, like, when you cover the Phantom Stranger's origin, or origins, he was a bastard in each one of them. He got what was coming to him by being forced to walk the earth. Here, you have probably the epitome of the good guy. He's a police detective who's so good at his job that everybody else in the station house kids him about busting these mobsters on his night off. Mm-hmm. With smiles on their faces, everyone loves him. He's got a beautiful woman on his, well, uh, I'm going to give the art the benefit of the doubt, beautiful woman on his arm who loves him for who he is, not for you know any other reason. He just loves the man, not that he's a cop or has prestige or any of that. And this is the guy doomed to wreak vengeance for all eternity? That doesn't make a lick of sense. Well, from the perspective of the voice of God or whatever it is beyond the pearly gates that gives him this mission, it is a sacred task, and he is the right man for the job. I think there's a line – let me find it. You have been chosen for a sacred mission, Jim Corrigan. As one who fought the forces of evil in life, can you not do so in death as well? So from that perspective, he's not being punished. He's being given a second chance at life to continue his mission for justice. It's his reaction that treats it like he's cursed. Well, his reaction is... Yeah, I'd rather just be dead. Thank you very much. And then when the voice comes back and says, okay, yeah, fine. You can go to your eternal rest. But that woman you love, she's dead. I mean, is that really a choice? Right. That, that's the inescapable thing that shows just how much of a hero he is. He's willing to face eternal servitude to let her live till old age, even without him. I think it could have been much better served if Roy Thomas had used the source material as a basis and told his own story. Now, I haven't read the Spectre series from the 80s, so I don't know how much of it builds on this and how much of it was all on its own and ignored this. So, you know, I can't say he was using this to help the other series or not, really. I Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't read that 80s series, even though I want to. I can't imagine he had that in mind, though, because this was just, I mean, half the time I think Roy was writing these origins out of spite. He was just going to go back to the stories that he loved as a child and forget everything that was going on outside of his little box. So uh, what you just said, I would rather he use the original source material as the framework and tell his own story. I would repeat that same phrase to the 35 stories that he contributed to the Secret Origins. <laughs> I would say that every time. Unfortunately, it's too late. He made different decisions. Yeah, but I understand where he was coming from because Earth 2 was his baby and they yanked it, the rug out from under him. Mm-hmm. But these aren't his characters, so he has to serve the greater story the great universe, but you've gone into that before. We won't get you in trouble. (laughs) I was going to say. Okay, let's go back. Well, the the other comment that you made was about the art. Yeah. The art is a a little too far into the cartoony for me. I mean, if you look at the cover, which is different art team, but the cover, you have this wonderful image of the specter that you can just look right at him as like, I don't want to meet him. (laughs) 
This, it's like, oh, okay, we, we ventured into Looney Tunes. Yeah, it is very stylized. It's, it's hard to put it down, I know. I know. No, no, no. Well, what I would say is that, like, the images where it needs to get crazy, it needs to get far out, where he's basically showing off the power set, and you get gangsters melting, and you get mm-hmm. the Swami confronted by every kind of monster trope imaginable. Those pages look beautiful. They're like beautiful collages of very extreme stylized art. But all of the other panels. Don't think the style is fitting of the tone. No, I I would say that if we had stuck to when the specter is using his powers to this art style and everything else looks fine, looks like your normal comic book art, it would have been actually much better because then it's like, holy crap, look at this weirdness that's going on right. in this sup- supposedly normal area. But I mean. <laughs> If you go to page six at the top where, where we see Clarice for the first time, you know, holding the phone, Corrigan is a very lucky man because he has a woman who is both a B cup and a double D cup. <laughs> I showed there's gotta this, be there's gotta be some shading there. Yeah, I, I showed this to my wife last night, and she just looked at it as like, boy, is she lopsided. Yeah. Uh, that's where you get way too stylized. See, I'm I'm the kind of guy. I'm not a fan of modern art. I like stuff that actually looks like something. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if the watch is melting, at least it looks like a watch. Yeah. For example. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, where you, when you start getting a little too screwy with the anatomy and things, mm-hmm. or like Corrigan's face changes even from when he's talking to his landlady to where he's punching the first mobster, his forehead loses about three inches. <laughs> So I I just I don't get this. I'm not an artist. I could not draw this well on my best day. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to take anything away from the art on here. It's just I don't think it fits this story. Yeah. And it it when I was reading it, it was actually jarring to me to try and get through it because when I think of the Spectre, I think of this vastly powerful yet detached character who will like he he melts a guy in this just on a whim it's like well guess what you're going to decompose and you're going to be conscious the entire time and that is what i'm thinking of but looking at this style of art that happening isn't shocking you know it's right. just a, another Goofy. I'm sorry to use the the term, but another goofy look in a goofy comic. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you go back to the Golden Age, I think the art in those stories was a bit better. I haven't read them, mind you, but I've seen panels from them. Yes, it's more primitive. Yes, it's a much cleaner way of looking at it. But if you use that in here, I could buy it a little bit better because then you have a Golden Age story with Golden Age artwork. Yeah. I'm I'm there with you. The art took me out of the story in a couple places. There were times when I, I felt like I absolutely knew what they were trying to do, especially like with Gat Benson and some of the gangsters. There are some panels where you, you look at them and it's like their face is misshapen. And he, it, it reminded me of like Dick Tracy villains. 
Uh, yes. And again, kind of yeah. going back to that uh, that extreme sort of cartoonist style, and I was like, I like that. It feels like we're trying to invoke more of a a pulpy old school comic strip feel, but there were other times when it just it didn't go. And the artist Michael T. Gilbert didn't do a whole lot of work in like sort of normal published comics. He he might have had like comic strips and like a regular circulation. Somebody else will have to tell me that. But I, I looked into it, and he doesn't have more than 20 credits to his name, I think, at uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, like I, only one or two for DC, I think. This isn't the artist I would have gone with. There are some panels that I really like, but uh, there's a lot that I feel like... Yeah, like if, if you look on, for example, on page 7, at the top of the page where you have Benson and Ratso mm-hmm. in the car. That looks really good. Mm-hmm. It's st- Yeah, it's a little bit on the stylized side, but the shading on the faces and the looks of them. Well, well, I, actually, the, the one closest – is he wearing a mask? Is he, is he like a moloid? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's got a, a nice big scar across his face. Okay, but like maybe it's just a bad printing on my end, but like he doesn't have much of a mouth. No, it's like he's he's got that tight lips. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm gonna kill this guy. And I can't wait to do it. But I can't do it in front of the police station. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's. I honestly expected to like this more than I did, which is well a bit disappointing. Let's kind of look at the story, sort of beat for beat. Okay. Um, let's go back to to page one. Um, this is a reference, and I don't know where this came from, why this was part of the original comics, but the Spectre is always drawn really large. That's like one of his go-to power sets is just becoming a giant. I, I, I don't know what that has to do with being a spirit of vengeance. It certainly it does distinguish him from other characters. I think it, it could be at least on this page, because I know in, in some of the JSA comics mm-hmm. – he would grow to enormous size, etc. But I think for this page, because it's simply a splash page giving you an intro to the character, I think it's to terrify his opponents. He, he's basically Kong. He's got some guy in his hand who's shooting at him. He's got another guy on top of a car shooting at him, yeah. and somebody else running the hell out of the scene. So I think in this case, it was just, look at how big and scary he can be. And that was it. Yeah, yeah I guess. Page two, Jim Corrigan singing. <laughs> yeah, that feels weird, given like the kind of like hard-boiled detective that he's going to be throughout the rest of the story. Yeah, well, even when he's taking down the mobsters, he's got a smile on his face. Yeah. So, and I can, I can, I like this. I can get behind this because it shows you those of us that read this way back when. We're familiar enough with the Spectre to know he's this grim visage, always serious, has to you know mm-hmm. punish the evildoer. To see the guy behind that singing is a nice juxtaposition because yeah. it shows you that yeah this guy was happy go lucky he was he was on top of the world and now look at him. Mm-hmm. So I I actually I, I I think I like it like this better than if he was just grim all the time. I mean, how can you not be singing when your landlady's bringing you a bowl of cookies? <laughs> <laughs> and when you're, you know, 
about to announce your engagement to a woman that'll probably keep falling down during the wedding dance because she's so... (laughs) (laughs) It's got... Yeah, that... Okay, we'll we'll come back to that one. Yeah, we'll we'll Um, get there. uh, On page three, the character Louis Snipe, uh, his informant who tips him off, that character comes back in the beginning of the 90s series by Ostrander and Mandrake... They sort of established that Louis Snipe set him up, that he was uh-huh. basically he, – he was paid by Gat Benson to get Jim Corrigan there, and he would be uh, in danger there. They, they kind of tweak the order of his origin. Nice. Okay. So basically once, once he goes to the docks, that's kind of where he's ambushed. Okay, so they they don't wait for him to meet up with Clarice. They just have right. him ambushed right here. That, that – Again, we're back to the story. Story-wise, that makes more sense. And actually, if you look at the uh, – because now we're back to Dick Tracy. Because if you look at Mm -hmm. Corrigan at the bottom of page three, put a yellow hat on him, he's Dick Tracy. Yep. He's got the jutting chin and the serious squinty eyes and everything. So I can see where they were going. It's just stick with it. Yeah. On page four – Corgan is fighting the Sandman before he becomes the Sandman. Uh, he must have special on the shirts or something. Yeah. yeah. For if those of you listening don't have access to the page, I'm talking about the Spider-Man villain, the Sandman, not one of the DC characters. It's it's a thug with kind of short blonde, like sandy blonde hair, and a green and black striped shirt. Although I am kind of surprised that Thomas didn't work in the Crimson Avenger or the Sandman or mm-hmm. the Flash into this story somehow. Right. He's, he's done it with how many others so far. Right. Yeah, Matt Wagner would do that in Sandman Mystery Theater. He actually had Detective Jim Corrigan play a recurring role for a while um, before, oh, okay. before he became the Spectre. And he was – I think he was investigating the Crimson Avenger for a while in that series. It's sort of a, a running like a C-plot in the deep background. Now I have to say these mobsters – They've got to be the worst shots ever. Because <laughs> Corrigan just, I'm, he literally beats them up with his fists. One guy shoots him from behind, and all he gets is a piece of the tuxedo jacket. And then a, a swift punch in the gut. Um, jumping up to, like, pages eight and nine, this is a gruesome death. I oh, mean, yes. For, I mean, this is... This is a great bit of characterization going back to the original story. I mean, to have your character be a ghost. This story always reminded and I'm always a little bit fascinated why this character was never adapted into a movie in the 90s. Because you don't need to tie him to a greater DC universe. And his story is basically the same as The Crow. Right. With the greater scope of special effects and horror. But where the character in The Crow is murdered in it with his girlfriend, they're just shot to death. This is like old, hardcore gangster. Like He's just put in a barrel that is filled with cement. He drowns in cement and then dumped in the river where his body presumably would never be found. That, that happens to your protagonist in the first story. Yeah, the, the drowning in the cement thing, that's... That is something that I wish that Thomas would have dealt a little bit more with because mm. normally you put him in cement overshoes right. and then throw him and he drowns in the river. Here, Benson purposely drowns Corrigan in cement and watches him die. Mm-hmm. 
there's more than a Swami's payoff in that. Right. There's some history there, and I would have loved to have seen that in these pages. Yeah. Yeah. I. You never want the sort of deconstructionist style of comics that we see too often. This is a sequence that I wouldn't mind seeing played over five or six pages instead of two. Right. Like, your main character, to to see his murder in such a slow, excruciating manner. I mean, this should explain why he is so angry, why he comes back (laughs) as the spirit of vengeance. And it's... It, it come. It's it goes pretty quick. It's not bad. It's not. Yeah. It, it's not glossed over. I mean, they. It's given a couple pages, but boy, that that could have been the whole hook of the story. But. Yeah. I mean, really, it could. They could have just gone into this, like we said, excise that third issue and just spend more time on this. Mm-hmm. I, I sound like I'm talking about the Star Wars prequels here. <laughs> Just go to the Phantom Menace and expand the other two movies over three, and then you're okay. But that's the wrong podcast for this. Actually, um, Paul Scavito, who has been on this show before, has a theory that after George Lucas is dead, somebody should do a special edition of the prequels and just add one scene at the end of episode three, which is that the whole trilogy was... Anakin Skywalker's, like, deathbed memory. That's the way he remembered the events. Like, it, was, it was all sort of his dream. That's the way he's telling the story to Luke when they're flying out of the Death Star right before he dies. And it's like, okay, that's your take. May not be the truth, but... So. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to know what kind of river this is that has jellyfish in it. <laughs> Um, I I imagine the East River has tons of, of like, basically, you know, dead bodies and jellyfish, like, deep sea. I, I didn't even notice that. Why would that be in I, It's another weird art thing. It's kind of like the, the striped fish, although I can believe a weird-looking fish in the East River. Sure. Not necessarily a jellyfish. They're a little too delicate for that. Yeah. But it's... Underwater, draw a fish, draw this. You know, draw. Make sure you draw the seaweed, even though it can't grow there. Well, there's so much pollution in our oceans right now. I don't know if seaweed can grow anywhere anymore. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, um, then we get the scene where he is confronted, basically, by the voice of God. Which, it's interesting that he gets transported up in a question mark. <laughs> it's, it's almost like the artist drew it, and it's like, do I put this here? And no one ever just said, no, you have to redraw that. <laughs> that's how we uh, assume that that's his spirit now? <laughs> or I, I guess. <laughs> He's not even sure. Or, or it's a choose-your-own-adventure? <laughs> this, this is the imaginary tale? From here on, Corrigan's actually dead. And it's all it, the, this is the dream between the, the crack of the rope and the crack of his neck. Yeah. Now there's an English uh, class callback for you. Right. Well, hang on. Wait, wait, wait. I know the story. I know the story. I have taught that story to kids. <laughs> shut up. Shut up. I gave them the project on it. I'm not saying a word. God. <laughs> An occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. There you go. Son of a... I don't... <laughs> I'm ashamed of how long that took me to get that. 
Okay. All right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> that is a good reference, though, by the way. I was, I was too obsessed with thinking of the name that, yes, that, is a good, <laughs> like that, that could be the, like, that would be the great, like, thing. Like, at the end, we see him wandering off and then cut back to just a shot of the barrel there. And he's, right, still, yeah. <laughs> he's still drowning. He's like, oh, that, wouldn't that be great if I could live on as a ghostly Avenger? But nope. All right. He is given the chance to go back to Earth to save his girlfriend and to bring justice to the gangsters who murdered him. And his instinct is to reject that and just go on to heaven. Yeah, I actually kind of like the way it says, you know, his his line is actually a moment ago. I wanted that more than anything, but not anymore. Now, I all I want is peace, eternal peace. So what I'm thinking is he is now beyond the needs of the flesh. Mm-hmm. So he he is pure spirit. So he doesn't feel this need for vengeance anymore. He just he's there. He's at the pearly gates. He wants to come in. And that's all he can think of because, you know, he's at his eternal rest. He wants to get pulled in. Now, you could look at this because it's just a voice. So you, you, you can say it's a voice of God. It's a voice of Jesus. It's a voice of St. Peter because there's nobody sitting at the gate. So you would assume that Peter would have to be around there somewhere. It's the phantom stranger. Yeah, it's a fam stranger being a dick again. <laughs> but it's he's barred, mm-hmm. basically. He is barred and not given a choice. He just kicked out, and he's actually flailing on the way down back to Earth. I think I want I want a moment where if if all he wants to do is have peace and go go on to heaven, then I want to know why. I want some sort of explanation. What has changed? A narration box, something. Yeah, is it just simply the, the fact that he doesn't have a body anymore? All of, his, all of his cares have gone away? Because otherwise this seems like he, the role should be reversed. He should be fighting to go back to Earth. He should be bartering and, that would make and, more make, sense. and making the pitch to go back because his mission isn't over. Let yeah. me go back. Right. Let me save Clarice. Right. You know, I don't want. I don't want this yet. Yeah. Right. And then Just, that that would have been so much better and a much better characterization. And then after he has saved her, then you he leave it the back. same. And then then he's barred. Right. And then it's like, well, no, this is what you wanted. You you do realize that we just came up with the plot to all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but you can never come back. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you can't keep a good dog down. No, sir. No, you can't keep a good dog down. I've seen pain and hurts. That's right. I've eaten dirt. That's true. It's hard to buy, but even I've been jilted by a skirt. He lies. But look, pal, I'm still around. Cause you can't keep a good dog down. You can't keep a good dog down. No, 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 no. You can't keep a good dog down. I've been bought and sold. He's been warm and cold. But ten to one, I'll still be running rockets when I'm old. Not in some cage in the city pound. Cause you can't keep a good dog. Can't keep a good... I say you can't keep a good dog down. So watch out when you hear this sound. 
good dog. No, you can't keep a good dog. I say you can't keep a good dog. So we're back, and he goes. <laughs> I I don't understand really. He was at the gates of heaven, and it takes him seeing his dead hand flopping out of the concrete mm-hmm. to realize that he's dead. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. I I I guess I can kind of understand that as far as maybe he thought that he would be sent back as. A human. Now he realizes. No, I'm back on Earth, but I'm I'm still dead. I'm just a ghost. But or it was so fantastic, it had to be a dream, and now sure. he's in actual reality. Right. That's the the synapses firing in her brain, just causing this hallucination as he's dying. So. <laughs> um. But like I said in the synopsis, he uses his powers to go see basically Ratso smacking Clarice, and that sets him off. That makes him really glad to be back, want to go get vengeance. Yeah. And again, we see him enlarged when he comes through the wall. He's gigantic. That's terror. And then turns Ratso into a rat, which I like the art on that, especially the rat with a little cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> he like, shrunk the cigarette yeah. down. That's like, hilarious. Like in that case, the art looks great. It's such it's so crazy and stylized. And, and you're right. If... If this style of art was reserved for those extreme moments, it would land so much stronger. Yeah, because right now it just it flows all together, and mm-hmm. you don't get that shock value yeah. of, holy crap, what do you just do to this guy? Mm-hmm. But it, this is the first time we see the little skulls as his, mm-hmm. his pupils in, in the close-up, which is... I don't know if it's just the what we're looking at for it was meant to be this way. He comes through the wall as a giant Jim Corrigan, still in the tuxedo and everything. Mm-hmm. But the close-up of his eyes, he's got the specter white skin and the skulls for pupils. Mm-hmm. So it's like the transformation's just starting. It's not quite there yet. Right. That's like... In his soul or something, in his, inside, that's what he, he looks like. But he still has this outer visage of Corrigan. Right. Page 15, when Gat is, as you said, goes all Last crusade <laughs> or or Raiders of the Lost Ark, whichever one. He basically just breaks down. Just- he literally just decomposes mm-hmm. in... In it's the same panel. It's like the the Johnny Quick thing, mm. where you have he's whole in, in the beginning, then he's starting to his skin's starting to ooze off, and finally his his guts are flopping out, his skin is gone, mm-hmm. his tongue's hanging out. So it, but again, if the rest of the page was drawn, let's just say like the cover of the issue, you know the the hard superhero kind of lines, and then this panel looked like that. It would really, really come up and grab you. Yeah. And then <laughs> we have the scene where Clarice has been shot. And, <laughs> and Corgan decides to, there's no better way to say it than just like suckle her <laughs> like, yeah, he, very well-endowed chest. Yeah, he, he doesn't lift her up and cradle her or something. He sticks his face in her chest. Yeah. Maybe he's trying to suck the bullet out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's like poison. That's exactly how it works. <laughs> it's, a bullet is the same as a snake bite. And then this this part 
drives me crazy. And it goes back to what we were saying. The specter brings her back to life. It's just one of the things that he can do. And he only does it this time. And Roy yeah. Thomas just goes with it and doesn't address it. Well, because if he if he said something about it, then he probably couldn't work in everything else. Personally, I would rather he dropped it like, oh, good. He missed Clarice. Right. And she passed out. Let me get her home. Right. And that way you don't have to deal with it and you don't set up this stupid contradiction for every other story where somebody gets murdered and the specter could just point at him and say, yeah, you're alive again. Right. Or he goes back to the pearly gates and he cusses out God and <laughs> basically says, you, you sent me back here so I could save her. You can't let her die. And I'll do whatever you want. Exactly. Just let her then live. <laughs> then he, he basically he sells his soul, not to the devil necessarily, to the, the other thing. But then you know, like God is like, okay, well, let's negotiate. It's like you want her to live. I want an agent on earth, and that can, that's going to be you. And instead we get that sort of in the next story, but we've already established that he has the power to save her from gunshots. Right. So it's Ah, Roy, Roy, what are you doing? You could, you could have made this so much. You could have made this a non-issue, a non-problem. Right. It, it, that's he, he includes that detail, and it just makes it confusing as hell. See, that's what I always thought. And again, I didn't read every issue of this when it was coming out. Mm-hmm. I wasn't into DC just yet, so I I would go back into the back issues and get what I could. But I always thought that the idea was to take the origins, update them, make them relevant for today's comics, today being 30 years ago. Boy, do I feel old now. (laughs) And make it work. Take the Golden Age stories or the Silver Age stories and make them work in the new context, the post-crisis context. He doesn't. He's he's so bitter about what happened to Earth 2 that he just says, well, the hell with you, I'm doing what I want. I think for Roy, updating the origin meant redrawing it so that, a, again, a modern, when we're talking about 30 years ago, a modern audience would find the art appealing, but keeping the original script as close as possible, changing the language when it got a little racist, because Lord knows a lot of these issues came off as racist from time oh, to yeah. time. And like tweaking some of the dialogue and, yeah, occasionally changing things when there was a, a glaring omission for the post-crisis continuity. But he changed as little as possible, sometimes to the detriment of the story. And, and not rarely. I think almost as often as not. These are, this is why I'm mad because he put his name down as the writer or the adapter. Right. But and? these aren't these are not Roy Thomas's stories. These are not his vision of the origin. He is adding maybe twenty percent to the story at max. And in any other context, if you handed your if you were a college student who turned in a term paper that was twenty percent your words <laughs> and eighty percent somebody else's published work from four decades ago, oh, you get bounced so quick. Yeah, but, but comics are a weird medium that way, that they do that. They republish the same stories with the exact same plot beats that are just kind of re- retweaked. But these ones, like, he hardly did anything. And I think a lot of it is also – now, 
I am a continuity guy. Mm -hmm. I love me some continuity. But part of the problem that Roy Thomas had was he he in his writing, he always had to connect point A to point X. Right. Even if there was no reason, just because Robin and Robot Man's assistant both have the last name of Grayson doesn't (laughs) mean they're related. I know other Hendrix is out there. I'm not related to them. They just have the same name. <laughs> uh. I come across as anti-Roy Thomas, and I complain about him a lot, but I, I do respect the heck out of the man and his contributions, and I, I listened to a recent episode of the Nerdist Writers Panel podcast, and they were talking to Mark Wade, and Mark Wade told the story that I think when he first became an editor on the series, and he was talking about he was talking to Dick Giordano about some of Roy Thomas's stories and and why they were so good and why they were still connecting, and and Dick Giordano was saying you feel the passion that Roy Thomas has for these characters because Roy Thomas would write these for free. Mm-hmm. And I believe that. I believe that's how much he loved these stories. Oh, I, I agree. And All-Star Squadron, it's something that I discovered very late in my comics career. Mm-hmm. But it is such a wonderful read because he's able to take these – he's able to fit the stories that he's writing – in between these golden age stories mm-hmm. and make it make sense. And that's wonderful. I love the fact that he has that ability. But there are times when you can't be slavish right. to the source material. There's times when you have to change it. If, if it's true that he would have written these stories for free – then I take issue with the fact that he probably did cash the check for some, <laughs> for some of these secret origin stories where he just copied the exact same script. <laughs> send, send your hate mail to Secret <laughs> Origins Podcast. Leave a comment. It, it, it makes for lively discussion, if nothing else. It does. It does. So moving on, <laughs> it, it, going to page 17, we have Corrigan, who is apparently able to take solid form. And I'm pretty sure that this was carried on, Mm -hmm. that he could be human and then change into the Spectre, whereas much later he was just all Spectre all the time. So he brings Clarice home and breaks it off because he is dead. He cannot marry her, and he would rather she be off, find somebody else and be happy. And you can see, and this is another page where I do not have a problem with the art. Mm-hmm. Because you can see on his face just how hard that was. Oh, it's a tragedy. This is a yeah. tragic point in the character's life. Yeah, I mean, even when he's telling her, his face is all in shadow. Mm-hmm. And then you see, when you finally see his face, he is he is about to lose it. Because mm-hmm. he is just told the love of his life, he does not care about her anymore. And then he goes off and yells and screams that, okay, I'm done. You told me what I had to do. I did it. Let me up. That last panel on page 17, Mm -hmm. what part of New York is that? The bright lights and the big neon signs, but also what looks like a random tree in the middle of the... Yeah, somebody dumped a tree in Times Square. (laughs) That's like an old, gnarled, like... That's a Tim Burton tree. That's like yeah. something out of his like Sleepy Hollow movie. That well, it, it's almost like what Gilbert did was he drew the foreground, he drew the tree and Corgan and the voice, 
And then Thomas or whoever said, you know, that's a lot of white space there. And he just photo referenced in a quick background of 40s New York. Yeah. Not caring about the geography. He's just, oh, this is New York-ish. Throw it in there. Because it's obvious photo reference. It, Mm. it, It just, with the rest of this art, that just jumps right out at you like, he didn't do this. And page 18, we get a costume change. Yes. For just one panel, he's in the tuxedo. The next panel, he's in the cloak. No longer do I wear the mortal guise of Jim Corgan, but of some undead specter. Changes. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> his his voice pattern has already started to change. Because mm-hmm. if you notice, he goes from the regular speech balloons right. on 17 to the end of 17 with the wavy ghostly voice and this is clearly where the third story was starting in the golden age where from more fun issue 54 because 53 would have ended with him breaking up with clarice this is the new one where okay i'm a ghost now and he gets the mission that hey your ex-girlfriend is going to be killed you got to go save her again yeah you brought her back to life and now she's gonna die again yeah maybe the universe is sending her a message. <laughs> yeah, you know what the universe is saying? Cover up, damn it. <laughs> I mean, this woman has gone through, what, three dresses so far, and all of them are cut down to her belly button? All right. Well, they in, make, the, in 1940? They make for such easy targets. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention her breasts keep moving up and down her chest. <laughs> Page 20. Bullet stop. That's <laughs> it's his power. I, it's straightforward. Sure. Yeah. Then he realizes he's in front of a giant clock. <laughs> right. I actually I like how the page is broken down. We get a lot of small panels as the bullet mm-hmm. is getting closer, and we we see the passage of time and how slowly this is moving. But it's we get we do get the ticking to- clock that he needs to make a decision that he's right. running out of time or she is running out of time. And again, we get that crucial moment. You can let her die. Presumably, you can both go up to heaven then and be together, possibly. Yeah. Or you can save her and doom yourself to this endless mission as the Spectre. This is a great classical hero's dilemma and a hero's choice that I think could have been in the first time that she was shot and just expand on that moment. Yeah, but I have to say that I've never seen the Spectre look so pathetic Mm. than in the bottom where he's begging. He is begging, and the the only word in that panel is please. Right. And you just look at this, and that's that's not the Spectre you know, Mm -hmm. but you can see where he's accepting his fate. To let her live because she means that much to him. Didn't mean that much to him when he was at the pearly gates. Mm-hmm. But now that she's here with her, yeah, it's you know, he's back in the land of the living, sort of. Right. And so now, yes, he I want her to live out her appointed span. Mm-hmm. So And then he catches the bullets and we get a, a glorious little montage panel. Like, it's half the page of yes. him terrorizing the Swami with all these little monsters. and Again, goes back to the same thing. If this was, if, if this panel was unique in how stylized and intense it is, it would have been much more shocking and much more captivating. 
Right. If you had that exact same panel, but the Swami looked more normal, Mm -hmm. it would have been that much more shocking. Now, here's my question for you. Obviously, this is from Morphon number 54. Yep. But how the heck does the Swami recognize him as Jim Corrigan? His voice is different. He's deathly white. He has red pupils in black eyes. He's a giant. How does any of this say Jim Corrigan? You can't see his hair, so you can't see red with white streak, which is the only giveaway I ever knew of on the Spectre. That is a good question. I, I have no idea what the original line would have been there. Probably that. Right. But just excise that. Get rid of I, This is from a guy who says that there should be thought balloons in comics. Get rid of that one. Right, we don't need that one. His only thought should be, holy, holy crap. <laughs> Get me the hell out of here. Mommy. Yes. <laughs> Now yeah. we get to a classic Spectre kind of death mm-hmm. where, I mean, before he turned Ratso into a rat, he right. made Benson disintegrate. Now mm-hmm. he immolates the body, puts the Swami's spirit in the mirror, right. looks at him, and then shatters the mirror. Yes. Draws it out beautifully. Yes. We're probably my favorite aspect of the Spectre's character because it's something that any artist can have so much fun with visually. Um, And this goes back to another high school literature reference, but the idea of symbolic retribution. It's biblical, but it it was really kind of played up in like stuff like Dante's Inferno and this idea of the nature of the sin being revisited upon the sinner. And uh, later Spectre artists and creative teams will really have fun with that idea. Um, but we do get a little nice nice little idea of it here. And we yes. see how, how he will start meeting out vengeance and justice in the series. And yet again, Clarice thinks that she has passed out and having dreams because she wasn't shot and killed. It was all a dream. <laughs> oh, she wasn't just shot at by the Swami. It was all a dream. But how did my mirror get shattered? And that's, yeah. On that day, Jim Corrigan died, and the Spectre was born. It was a thoroughly unsatisfying story. I hate to say that, because the Spectre is one of those big characters that you would think needs a grand origin. I I would phrase that as the story. The Spectre's origin is a good story. This Mm. is not a great telling of the story. The story is good. The script sucked. But you're going to have a few duds, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What are some better Spectre stories that you've read? Well, some people aren't necessarily going to agree because they don't like the artist or the way he does things. But I would say one of the best Spectre stories is actually Kingdom Come by Alex Ross and Mark Wade. Because the Spectre in that is... I mean, here, he is right there. He has just died. He has all the passions of a man, has to do this. In Kingdom Come, he has been the specter so long. He is so far removed from humanity. He needs somebody else to tell him what decision to make. Who do I punish? And it's, it's very interesting, especially the first time I read that and get to that point, and I didn't realize... That's why he needed Norman McKay there. 
it's because he couldn't make the decision anymore. It was like two face without his coin. He could not make the decision because he didn't have that spirit there. But then at the end of the story, you see Jim Corrigan in the pew. Mm -hmm. So he's found his humanity again. It's not solely a Spectre story, but you can see the Spectre's arc in the whole thing, which I really, really like. Yeah, that was actually, that was probably the first time that I saw the Spectre, that I was introduced to the character. Because, as I mentioned every episode, I think I have some context for this, but I really started reading and collecting comics regularly in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And I was much more into Marvel for the longest time. I always tried to get DC, but I did get Kingdom Come when that came out, and I loved it. I, I loved the art, and that was that was one of the ways that I came into a lot of these characters, as different as they were. And, you know, much later, that was this going off on a tangent, but I wasn't, I wasn't a Superman fan in the 80s or in the 90s. I knew of the character from the old cartoons and from the toys, and I liked him then, but once I started getting into the, I was a 90s kid. Like, that was, I, you know. He didn't have enough belt pouches for you. Exactly. I was like, like <laughs> Superman was old and he was lame. He wasn't cool. You know who was cool? Cable was cool. I want to say. <laughs> and it, it also doesn't help that one of the first books that I read that was so formative was The Dark Knight Returns, which positioned Superman as a tool. But Kingdom Come was one of the first times where I read it and Mark Wade got me thinking about Superman in a different way. And it was when Superman confronted Bruce Wayne in the Batcave. And it's essentially, it's that moment of there's more that unites us than divides us. When he says, when you strip away everything, the one thing we've always had in common is that neither of us wants to see anybody die. And I was like, wow, that's a really good line. I started thinking, I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe Batman and Superman don't have to be that different. It's like maybe they don't have to fight because they they do essentially have the same mission, and that started a slow process of turning me around and making me a Superman fan. So, so yeah, I've al- I've always liked Kingdom Come for that purpose. And then yes, it was everything you just said. It was a great Spectre arc within that story. That was the first time I I think I appreciated the character mm-hmm. is in Kingdom Come because I I was a, a Marvel kid. From way back, my my very first comic book was a Marvel comic book, The Incredible Hulk, and like you, I remember you know DC characters from the Adam West TV show or the Christopher Reeve movies or the Super Friends or mm-hmm. stuff like that. I didn't actually get into the comics themselves, the DC comics, until my act- my actual first DC comic was Action Comics Annual for 1989, okay. which was part of the. Uh, the Superman in Exile storyline. That's where he's in the gladiator garb on mm-hmm. War World. And I, I saw that, I'm like, that's Superman. I, <laughs> I think I should read this. And then I backtracked, and when I was backtracking, I ended up at, obviously, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right. And that's where I was actually first introduced to the Spectre. And he was a background player, but you got the idea from it that he is so powerful, he had these Three, I think it was three at the time, universes that he was holding together. <laughs> so you just look at that, it's like, okay, I definitely don't want to be on his bad side. That brings up, I think, one of the, the main questions that I have about the character. Is he too powerful? Well, it depends on how, how his restrictions are handled. Mm-hmm. If, like we were saying before, if he is simply reactive, 
where something is bad enough that gets his attention and he punishes someone, then he is not necessarily too powerful because he is restricted in what he can do. He cannot prevent the tragedy. He cannot prevent the war. But he can punish those responsible. Depending on how it's handled with that Tales from the Crypt twist at the end with his punishments of them, then I think it works. But he is one of those characters that has to be used very sparingly. So can he work on a Justice Society of America? Can he work on a team like that? He can if he is the last one they go to. In the Justice Society, at that point, you had Dr. Fate and the Spectre. Now, the Spectre was, and this is another interesting story with him, is the Superman arc time and time again, where Superman's being bounced around in time. He ends up back in the 40s and realizes, hey, wait, I can go to the Justice Society and see if they can get me home. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he actually travels to Gotham City because post-crisis, the Justice Society met in Gotham City. And got to the roof of their building, was ready to go in. He could see their meeting with his x-ray vision going on. And the specter comes in and says, no, you're out of time. You cannot affect what's going on here. Get out. And the specter basically blinks him to the next place he's going in the next comic. The Justice Society comes up. I think it's a flash that says, oh, we thought we heard someone up here. How are you doing, Corrigan? It's just... I can't. He says some some quip or something. Right, right. But it was when the Spectre was still able to make a joke, and that's before he got super duper powerful. The Spectre is a lot like Superman in that creators over time tend to ramp the power up to the point where you have to then do a reset, and a lot of that happens like with Hal Jordan and then Crispus Allen where you had this Jim Corrigan eventually went on to his final reward. I never read that story, so I don't know how it happened. But then the Spectre was without a host. So then they take Hal Jordan, who I don't know if you've heard this, but apparently he was Parallax. Uh, I heard a rumor about that, yeah. but it might have been yeah. crazy talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah appar- Apparently he went goofy and tried to destroy all of time. So his punishment was to become the new Spectre with a Green Lantern emblem on his chest and a mask because Hal Jordan has to be the most important man in the room regardless of whether he's being punished for all eternity. (laughs) So then they ramped the power back down because, oh, it's a new host, so he can't be as powerful. So if, if he's handled right, I think the Spectre can work. But like Dr. Fate or Dr. Strange... He's magic. And the tendency for magic in comic books is it can do whatever you want it to do. And that's boring. So you have to put all you have to do these restrictions where he has to be reactive. He has to be able to point to the person, say, you did this. Here's your punishment. But if he can't, if there's something else going on, he can't do it yet. He has to wait for the whole thing to play out. Hmm. So it's. As I was doing research for this uh, for this story, um, I decided to go to check out the uh, the '90s Spectre series by Ostrander and Mandrake. Okay, um, I read the first issue, instantly fell in love with it. 
and I ended up getting like the first twelve issues, and I just devoured them in like two <laughs> days. Um, I love that series. I love the the look that they give the character. And one of the things that I think Ostrander did that was so brilliant was the restraint, the restrictions that he puts on him are almost an accidental byproduct of the fact that he he puts Jim Corrigan at odds with the Spectre. And uh-huh. it, it's almost it's almost a Bruce Banner Hulk dichotomy when you think of how impossibly powerful the Hulk is. What stops him from doing whatever he wants is the fact that the host body sabotages him as often <laughs> as he can. Um, so that's a kind of an interesting an interesting uh, setup that they do with the Spectre is that Corrigan wants to be more restrained and he's often pulled away from what he wants to do by this spirit of vengeance that is instantly reactive. It's like automatic. Oh, somebody got murdered a block away. You need to go. You need to deal with this. And he's like, no, I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'm investigating. I'm trying to rediscover my humanity here. And the specter's like, don't care. Go <laughs> dispense justice. <laughs> this is your job. And it like pulls him away. So that setup, that conflict, essentially between two characters that is really internal creates a natural kind of restriction, and it is a system of checks and balances between the characters. Um, and I really liked the way they did that. Yeah, that that seems to make a lot of sense, because then you can have the human side acting on his own, mm-hmm. and then come back into it like, okay, now I will give myself over to the Spectre and let him deal with what needs to be dealt with. Right. Other thoughts, other ideas about the Spectre before we go? This is one of those characters that you need to have the right creative team on or it won't work. Mm-hmm. It, he will be Deus Ex Machina boy and that that's it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, like I said, that makes a boring story. But I like the idea of the character. I like the idea that there is this spirit of vengeance in the DC universe that sometimes comes in conflict with the regular heroes. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting way to tell a story. Has he appeared since the new 52? I don't think so. I don't actually know. I, I haven't read a a new comic and I don't know how long. So I, I am so far out of the loop. It's fun. It's not funny. I don't, I don't remember. (laughs) I, I only read a few issues of earth Two, And he wasn't in there when I was reading it. I didn't see him in any of their like justice league, dark or swamp thing books. I don't know if he has, if somebody's more, you know, current with the new 52 or the DC, you, um, certainly let us know. Do you have any other recommended readings besides Kingdom Come? Not especially. I mean, there's there's the Day of Vengeance story, mm-hmm. but that's not so much about the Spectre as about the people reacting to an uncontrolled Spectre. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a character study or anything. Right. But he's most of the plot device more than yeah, he he's the big bad in it, right? Which is great for the other characters because they have to overcome this super powerful being, but it's not so good if you're trying to find out about the Spectre. So uh, in my experience, I haven't really read much beyond Kingdom Come that would give you an insight into the character itself. I am going to check out that Ostrander series, though. It's really good. A few of the, like, 
I think there have been two trades that collect 22, the first 22 issues. It's also available digitally on Comixology. Um, the other big one that I would recommend, seriously, get the collection Wrath of the Spectre, and it completes or it collects the run by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo. Uh, listeners who heard the Phantom Stranger episode heard Rob Kelly talk about how Jim Aparo is his favorite artist of all time. If you read these Spectre stories drawn by Jim Aparo, you will absolutely understand why. Um, they are just beautiful to look at. And these stories are much more reflective of that old EC, creepy and eerie style where mm. uh, they're very done in one and you get him, him showing up just to dispense, you know, to punish these wicked people in these very creative shock ending type of deaths. Um, beautiful, beautiful stuff. I'll look for that, too, because, I mean, Jim Aparo is my Batman artist, yeah. so I, yeah. I can, I'll be all over that if he's drawing the Spectre. Yeah, it's great, great stuff. So, Gene, thank you very much for being part of this episode. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, thank you for having me on. And the easiest place to find me would be at thehammerstrikes.com, which is my blog where every Thursday I give you another little tidbit of geeky goodness. And there's not necessarily a pattern. It's just whatever happens to pop into my head, I write an article about it, and there you go. If you would like to hear me actually ramble on, then you can go to twotruefreaks.com or you can follow the links off the Hammer Strikes. And I have several shows over there. The one is the Hammer Podcast, where I do basically a verbal version of the blog. It's whatever pops into my head and I'll go on for a half an hour or so and there you go. And under that, I have the Legends of the Superheroes series where I talk with other podcasters about live action versions of comic book characters such as the adam west batman or the red brown captain america even <laughs> uh, another did show that, did you do that one with chris franklin did i hear why that episode? why yes i did <laughs> that, that was part of our crossover uh, yeah, i yeah. i went on supermates to do the kathy lee crosby wonder woman yes and he came on my show to do the red brown so uh, for some reason we couldn't get cindy to sit through the red brown movies i, I, I don't know why <laughs> Uh, also on Two True Freaks, I do the Quantum Cast with my uh, very good friend Jif Fishman, where we cover all things Quasar. And yes, we actually have a podcast about D-list Marvel superhero who died twice in his own series. <laughs> but it's a it's a fun fun listen, so I would recommend it. Uh, under that, we have the podcast no one should listen to, which is Comic Book Fight Club. <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious. If you have any taste at all, you avoid it like the plague. But if you do happen to listen, I think it's a good time. But I'm involved, so I have to say that. Uh, lastly, I do a show with Dr. Bill Robinson called Anime Freaks. And at the moment, we are doing an episode-by-episode -episode look at the old Star Blazers TV show. And after that, we're going to do the movie Akira. And beyond that, it's up for grabs. So it's two old guys talking about anime. One more time, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. I do look forward to having you back, like, next week. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the next episode.
Before we get into the feedback section, I realize that many of you right now are planning to attack me and Gene in the comments section because we did not bring up the DC Showcase animated short, The Spectre, the one that came with Justice League Crisis on Two Earths. I had it in my notes to talk about that short and just forgot when it came down to record. But I have seen that show. I love it. It's amazing. It's like in the top five greatest things DC Animation has ever produced, in my mind. If you haven't seen it, you can probably find it on YouTube. It's about ten minutes long. It has this gritty 70s grindhouse style, and it captures the flavor of the Fleischer Apero stories. you got to watch it. The other note, before I get into your letters... At the time that we recorded the Spectre session, Gene was scheduled to do the Hour Man segment in the next episode, but he talked smack about my woman, and now he's dead to me. Or, really, our schedules conflicted and he just couldn't do it. So, next episode, I will be welcoming one veteran podcaster making his first appearance on Secret Origins, one returning guest, and one brand new first-time podcaster, all on Secret Origins Podcast Episode 16. But now, your feedback from episode 14, which featured the Suicide Squad. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Alan Middleton, Ange, Between the Pages, Ed Moore, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Jacob Edwards, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Mike Garvey, Mr. J, Myth Making Etc., Siskoid, Superman, Trademark, Too Dangerous, Trekker Talk, and Words and Pictures. Over on Facebook, episode 14 received likes, mentions, and shares from Anthony Durso, Aaron Moss, Clinton Robison, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Jimmy McGlinchey, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, The Pulped Pixel Podcast, Shag, Sean Engel, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Task Force X, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Van Z said, I have never been a Suicide Squad fan, but after listening, I have to check it out. Good stuff. Clinton Robinson said, For me, Suicide Squad was always that semi-adult book that had a lot of villains in it that I had never heard of, so of course young me passed on it. Only in my later years did I begin to realize it was an excellent book full of stories with more or less serious consequences. As for Amanda Waller, CCH Pounder will forever be my headcanon version of the character. She brought the character to life with the perfect emphasis of no-nonsense seriousness, combined with a take-charge attitude and just a hint of bitchiness that we have all come to expect from Waller. After all, as she put it in Assault on Arkham, a.k.a. the trial run for a Suicide Squad movie, nobody screws the wall. Greg Rougeau said, unlike the Golden Age Fury origin, the Suicide Squad story does a good job of generating interest in the Ostrander-McDonald series. Probably didn't hurt that the first issue hit comic stands two weeks later. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine pointed out that the 1964 murder of Kitty Genovese that I brought up in reference to Amanda Waller's daughter's murder has been largely debunked by history. Because, hey, why let a good story ruin some boring facts? I would counter that, however, in saying most of the criticisms of the diffusion of responsibility phenomena came out decades after Ostrander wrote the story. Moving on to the WordPress page, where, as always, you guys gave me a ton of terrific feedback, but I'm not going to read every word of every comment, and I'm not even going to respond to a whole lot of them, because it kind of sounds like everyone is on the same page with regards to this issue of Secret Origins. Either people read Suicide Squad and they loved it, or they didn't read it back then, but now they want to get into it. Either way, it's great for the success of the book, and it sounds like this episode got everyone excited for experiencing these comics, which is great. Uh, So, diving in. 
Jeff Nettleton said, This was the first issue of Secret Origins that I really, really enjoyed. I was hooked by the concept of the Suicide Squad in Legends, and this filled in the background, mixing several different comics into one narrative. John Ostrander does a great job here mixing old and new with equal measure, something that Roy's stories often failed to do well. I enjoyed how Ostrander turned the original squad into a government response to the disappearance of the JSA, a thread handled quite well in DC The New Frontier. I would love to see more adventures of these guys. It reminds me of some of the ITV adventure series from the UK in the 60s, like the Champions and the Avengers, not to mention the John Pertwee era of Doctor Who. It also brings to mind old favorite comics, like Wally Wood's Mars Patrol at Gold Key. And Jeff said, I have a slight bone to pick in regards to Ronald Reagan. Really? I think lots of people have bones to pick regarding Ronald Reagan, but okay. He was a B-movie star, and was never quite at the level of what I would label a movie star, which tends to describe the stars of the main features. Reagan was better suited as Errol Flynn's buddy, like in Desperate Journey, a great film for any Suicide Squad fan, where Flynn and his crew kicked Nazi butt across Europe. And Jeff mentioned, There is no Rick Flagg Sr. in the War That Time Forgot stories in Star Spangled War. In fact, in the first couple of issues, a PT boat skipper is the senior officer of the group of soldiers on Dinosaur Island. I believe Rick Flagg Sr. is created here. The story ends up combining the War That Time Forgot, Star Spangled War, Black Hawk, Haunted Tank via Jeb Stewart, Suicide Squad from Brave and the Bold, OSS, Showcase issue 104. About the only properties missing are The Losers, Sergeant Rock, and The Unknown Soldier. Also, the post-war Task Force X appears to include Mademoiselle Marie, the French Marquis character from the DC War comics, a thread picked up, again, by Darwin Cook in The New Frontier. Great comic, great episode. Thank you. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, It occurs to me that the contrived aspects of Rick Flagg's story were intentional because his origin was an artificial memory. This was revealed in the 2008 miniseries, originally called Raise the Flag, and collected as From the Ashes by John Ostrander, which retconned Rick Flagg's origin to be a memory implant by General Eiling. His sense of duty, guilt, and dedication were all deliberately engineered. And then Paul asked if Ostrander always intended this story point for Rick Flagg. Jeff Nettleton came back and said probably not. It was most likely a new development that came about with the emphasis on mind control and manipulation that was prevalent in the late aughts. Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Have you tried the current comic? Writer Sean Ryan is finally capturing an Ostrander Yale vibe, and new artist Felipe Briones is a real find. Oh, and whisper it. The svelte since 2011, Amanda Waller is picking out on pulled pork and burgers. And I foolishly missed Martin's pun about basking in robins, such as it was. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I enjoyed the Suicide Squad, or Task Force X, and Amanda Waller on Justice League Unlimited. From what I knew of the character, CCH Pounder really nailed the wall. The creator seemed to take to her, even tying her into Batman Beyond retroactively. Not bad for a Nell Carter lookalike. I agree it's ridiculous that Waller can't be the overweight, middle-aged woman that she was meant to be nowadays. I thought some artist went too far with her weight, John Byrne drew her like Jabba the Hutt, but McDonald got her just right, and his art was far more suitable on the Suicide Squad than JLA, or JL Detroit, if you will. Chris also said, I had no idea the secret origin worked somewhat like James Robinson's Starman, but with the war comic characters. Jeb Stewart? I had no idea anyone did anything with him outside of World War II. 
And Paul from Waiting for Doom responded, Jeb Stewart and the Haunted Tank were dusted off and taken for a spin in the Garth Ennis John McRae underrated demon run in the late 90s. It was an exuberantly fun outing that I highly recommend. It's collected in the Demon Hell's Hitman trade, which is getting released this December. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, While Suicide Squad never officially made it onto my pull list, it was the one book that I would often retry, picking up random issues here and there. It had Deadshot, it had Nightshade, it had Oracle, it had the Duchess slash Lashina. While now I would love to have bought the series, I am left with looking through bargain bins for the issues to fill the rather long gaps, and I curse the younger Ange for not recognizing the book for the solid title it was. And he adds, I first heard of the Suicide Squad in the Best of the Brave and the Bold Digest that also introduced me to Viking Prince, Silent Knight, etc. So seeing the concept in Legends really fit the creative explosion happening at DC at the time. Michael Chiaroscuro said, I'm only a little bit into the podcast. So far, so great, guys. But I have to talk about the Cabrini Green Candyman reference. If you guys wound up discussing this later in the podcast, forgive me. Here goes. Candyman was a 1992 horror flick set in Cabrini Green and about an urban legend named Candyman, but it's based on the Clive Barker short story The Forbidden, which was actually set in England. And of course, this issue of Secret Origins is from the 1980s, so is it pure coincidence that there is a Cabrini Green Candyman character in the Amanda Waller origin several years before the film Candyman came out? Does anyone know? Uh, Michael, I have no idea if there is an intentional connection. I sort of doubt it. The Candyman reference in Secret Origins is a pretty throwaway line. I think Ostrander could have done more with the concept if he really wanted to pay homage to the Clive Barker story. But as you pointed out, that wasn't even set in Chicago until the movie came out five years after the comic. So yeah, I doubt there is a connection, but I could be wrong. Maybe Ostrander could answer this if anyone ever asks him. Someone shoot him a message on Facebook. And finally, I will give the last word to Mr. Task Force X himself. Aaron Moss said, So I'm watching the Green Lantern movie on FX, and I just noticed something that I missed, or didn't pay attention to the first time. When Hector Hammond touches Amanda Waller, he sees a glimpse into her mind, and he sees her with her husband Joe, three gunshots, and pictures of two kids and her hubby, and so on. I just now thought how much these flashes remind me of the Suicide Squad origin. While this movie does have its problems, seeing the wall's origin revealed this way was a nice touch and a tip of the hat to fans, in my opinion. Cool catch, Aaron. It's nice that you can find something of value from that Green Lantern movie. Uh, but that is all for this episode. Some of you might be wondering why I didn't read any feedback from the Irredeemable Shag. Well, if you've been following him on Facebook and Twitter, you know that Shag attended DragonCon this past weekend, where he met Robbie Amell and Danielle Pennebaker, the actors who play Ronnie Raymond and Caitlin Snow on The Flash. Well, naturally, things took a dark turn, and Shag is probably being arraigned as I record this. It's a terrible tragedy for the show, but good news for anybody who wanted to podcast with Rob Kelly in the near future. Send him an audition tape. One more time, I want to thank my guests, Doug Zavisha and Gene Hendricks, for appearing on this show. Feedback can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can send feedback via email to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the feedback is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. 
The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm gonna ask you, baby Hey, ho Oh, baby, don't you go Don't you go